please open your Bibles to James uh, chapter 4. Our passage for this morning, uh, for the fourth week in a row, now is James 4, 1 to 10. And let's begin by reading this passage in this context, as we've been doing so often here over the past few weeks, starting up in James 3, the second half of verse 10. Again, that's James 3, 10 through James 4, 10. Once again, James follows up his instructions about the dangers of the tongue with this. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We live in a world that's filled with confusion. And lately, it only seems to be getting worse. It's perhaps most apparent when you turn on the news. I don't know if you've noticed this lately, but it's as if there's only one thing worth reporting on anymore, and that's the latest controversy surrounding Donald Trump. A month ago, it had to do with the North Korea summit. Two weeks ago, everything was about immigrant children being separated from parents at the border. Last weekend, it was about Melania's jacket. Donald Trump simply dominates the news cycle. Just about everything seems to be about him. And of course, there's no love lost between those on both sides of the controversies surrounding the president. One side repeatedly declares fake news at every negative news report, while the other side screams liar over and over again. The news agencies covering the president don't seem to help the situation either. For example, according to the website PolitiFact on Fox News, just 41% of the statements made by news hosts and their guests can be rated as half true or better. That number is around 58% for NBC news outlets, 66% for ABC, and 73% for CNN. 
So even according to what PolitiFact says is the most reliable news network, in this case they're saying CNN, that still means that more than a quarter of what's being said is mostly false, if not a flat-out lie. I would imagine that right now, after I just said that PolitiFact rated CNN as the most reliable news network, you might be saying to yourself, uh, yeah, but who is PolitiFact, right? Who owns that organization? Where did their journalists go to school? And how did they vote in the last election? And that just proves my point. There is so much bias in the information that we receive from day to day that we're suspicious of just about everything we hear. At least we should be. For example, in the numbers I just read, PolitiFact is simply reporting on the accuracy of the total content of each news network. What those numbers do not indicate is what percentage of network programming comes from statements made by guests, which networks can entirely be held accountable for. In other words, it doesn't take the formats of these various news channels into account. Nor, for that matter, does it deal with the general content of each network, what they decide to report on. So I got curious. And on Tuesday morning, I decided to pull at random from the front page of both Fox News and CNN, which I, uh, I think most would agree are on the opposite end of the political spectrum, right? And what did I find? The headline for Fox News had to do with Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters calling on Democrats to harass Trump officials in public. On CNN, the headline was about an immigrant mother whose four-year-old thinks that she deserted him. And right next to that, by the way, was a headline about a CNN reporter who was heckled at a Trump rally. Uh, So I think we can see what's going on here, right? The news story about the separation of immigrant families was very negative press for the Republican Party, and so Fox News follows up that crisis by changing the topic and focusing on the inflammatory statements made by Congresswoman Waters, while at the same time CNN attempts to keep the news focused on that subject, even after President Trump signed an executive order ending the practice, and they do it all the while at the same time saying, oh, and by the way, just look at how Trump supporters harass our people in public. Forget about accuracy, guys. Even the content itself, what we hear as news, is completely biased on both sides. And so as a society, we're very confused. And out of this confusion comes incredible disorder. You know, I think it is newsworthy, for instance that the Florida Attorney General was recently harassed at a movie theater for the mere fact that she was a Trump supporter and to the degree that she even had to be escorted out of the theater by police. I find that newsworthy because I think it points to the, uh, to the degree to which this bias in reporting is fostering division and even hate in our society. Very clearly, the tone of our public conversation has changed in recent years, and I think most of us would agree it, it hasn't necessarily been for the better. And if we're trying to understand the source of these divisions, I don't think we have to go very far. The Bible tells us where this all comes from. And that's the devil himself. Our adversary, Satan, the one who Jesus calls the father of lies and the ruler of this world, he's the ultimate source behind the confusion and chaos in this world. And he sows this confusion specifically to create division in God's order. 
We saw this last week. I explained that Satan desires to keep man in bondage to sin so that he might face the wrath of God. The very word devil means accuser or slanderer. And that describes Satan's primary activity in this world. He, he cannot attack God himself. And so he does the next best thing he can by attacking the image of God, which he does by acting as a kind of spiritual prosecuting attorney. This work of spiritual condemnation entails two primary activities, both of which require a great deal of deception. First, Satan tempts mankind through the use of lies to provoke man's sin and reveal himself to be a sinner. And then second, he works to obscure the truth of the gospel so that after sinning, men might not have the opportunity to repent and find forgiveness. We see this very sort of temptation and even confusion at work in the various systems of the world as half-truths and flat-out lies about God and the world He's created are first planted and then circulated among societies, political and cultural leaders, people like our news broadcasters, so that division and chaos might reign. In other words, you know those old TV shows? Where at some point in the show, the villain disguises himself as the hero? And then at the key, this key moment where the two are fighting, you know, the protagonist gets a gun in his hand, and he's trying to figure out who he aims at. And they're both saying something like, no, I'm, I'm the real Batman. No, it's me. I'm the real Batman, right? Well, that's essentially what Satan does. Like Paul says, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He wants to mix truth with error. He wants evil to be called good and good evil. And that's because he wants to sow just enough doubt in our minds about what is true to keep the world off balance. He wants us to say with Pilate what is truth. And with Eve to wonder, did God really say that? Because he knows that once man begins to question the very notion of truth and just what it is that God has said, he knows that once man begins to say, I don't know who to believe, I can't trust anyone anymore, then man looks upon the evangelist with the same sort of suspicion as the false teacher. And his mission is thus accomplished. The gospel is veiled. Of course, this means that Satan is particularly interested in the health and vitality of the church. The church, once again, is the pillar and buttress of the truth, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15. It's the setting that holds and presents this beautiful, precious crown jewel of the gospel to the world. And so Satan is interested not just in sowing confusion among the institutions of the world, but he's most particularly interested in doing this within the church, so that the church might be hindered in its gospel mission. Last week I said he does this in a couple of ways. Number one, he promotes worldly thinking in the church, either by sending false teachers or by attempting to bring the church into close contact with the world. And then number two, he uses his influence in the world to bring trials on the church. Either way, his goal is to either distract and confuse the church with worldly thinking to perhaps even nullify its message by displaying its hypocrisy or at the very least to bully Christians into silence. As we come to James chapter 4, we see how Satan has been effective in accomplishing this mission in the congregations that James is writing to. We know from chapter 1 that he has apparently brought a series of trials upon these churches. We know as well from chapters 2 to 3 that these trials have resulted in a series of conflicts in the church. Uh, It would seem over money in particular. 
And this is all working together to both confuse the church's message and arouse the jealousy of God. James tells his readers in verse 4 here, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's what the church has been displaying in their preference for financial security over Christian charity and fellowship. They're demonstrating that they love this world more than the next. They're demonstrating that they've fallen under the demonic thinking of this lower order. And this is angering God. James says, verse 5, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us? God sees this mammon worship in the church, and it's arousing His jealousy. The the church is His bride. He's redeemed us so that we might be dedicated to Him in worship. So He's seeing this unfaithfulness in His bride, and it's arousing His jealousy. In fact, it would seem that this is even why God is letting Satan bring these trials upon the church in the first place. Satan means the trials for evil to blind the world from the gospel. But God means it for good to to rebuke and correct His church. The trials are the rod of His discipline. James sees all this taking place and he exhorts these congregations, verses 7 to 8, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Remember, some of these congregations think that these trials are happening because God is making them sin. And James is telling them, no, they're happening because of your sin. So repent, turn once again to God, and He will heal you. That's a very Old Testament sort of message. And we should expect that nothing nothing less in a letter addressed to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. It's a message that these Christians of all people would have understood perfectly. So what should these Christians do then now that the problem has been identified? For for that matter, what ought we to do once we realize that our own spiritual adultery has been exposed? Of course, it's not just James readers that are subject to this kind of discipline. We too can face this sort of rebuke from God. I've even encouraged you to examine the root of your conflicts in recent weeks so that you might be able to identify how your idolatrous faith is leading you into the types of conflicts that are plaguing these churches. So what do you do once you've identified the source of the conflict and and realize that it's rooted in your idolatry? James has already given us one step to take, and that's resist, right? Right? Resist the devil, he says, and draw near to God. I explained last week, this means persevering in faithfulness. You don't give in to the idol. You push back. You place Christ at the center of your orbit and allow your life to be shaped by His commands. And we also saw that this most definitely requires faith. Again, Satan encourages disobedience by provoking doubt, either through the use of false teachings or trials. And so if we're going to persevere in spite of his efforts, it means that we must resist this doubt by putting on faith. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.9, referring to the devil. He says, resist him firm in your faith. It's the shield of faith that extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one, according to Ephesians 6.16. So we put on faith. We know that. But but how? How do we put on faith? How do we resist the devil? 
I think James tells us the answer in the next two actions that he describes in this passage. I'm presenting these actions as three steps. Uh, Just as an unfaithful wife will take a series of footsteps to return back to her husband once again, so also are these the steps that James exhorts us to take as we draw near to our husband once again. This morning we're going to take a look at the second step. Again, the first step was to resist. The second step now is rinse. Rinse. We not only put push away Satan's temptations, we also wash away our impurities. James says, verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I noted last week that James packages these three steps in a series of parallel or even contrasting statements. Uh, You know, pull away from Satan and draw near to God, for instance. That's one example of two commands that are joined together by a similar though contrasting idea. Here's the second. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's one command. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the parallel. Both have to do with this idea of washing. But if you notice, they're not exactly saying the same thing. One command says to wash our hands, and the second says to wash our hearts. And given what James has said thus far, I don't think we can overlook that distinction or suppose that that James is practicing a form of Hebrew poetry called parallelism where he rhymes the idea rather than a word. He's made evident that, 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 that throughout this letter... That we, who we are on the inside reveals itself in our actions. He's made evident as well that God desires the whole person. God is Himself one. He's completely unified in His being. And that means that all things are likewise to be submitted to His purposes. Both the inside and the outside of a person are to be cleansed. God wants both our beliefs and our actions. Again, James has made this clear throughout this book. So if someone is going to resist Satan and draw near to God, they must first purify their heart. This is probably the most obvious of these two parallel commands. The world is absolutely filled with attempts to either deceive or bully the Christian into spiritual adultery and impotence. Due to time's sake, I didn't spend much time talking about this last week, but it's simply everywhere in our society. There are obvious examples, of course. There's the the university professor that undermines the truthfulness of Scripture and even the theological underpinnings of the gospel by pushing an evolutionary worldview. That's obvious enough how that conspires to undermine the Christian faith. I mean, how many young people, right, have come back from a Bible class at a secular university going, I never realized there were so many contradictions in the Bible. Those kinds of deceptions are obvious. As are the more obvious forms of temptation. You know, the the internet ad with the scantily clad woman or something of that sort. Those types of temptations aren't too hard to discern. But I really think the Christian is more often undone by the less obvious examples. Especially those who are committed to their faith. Now, for them, the really obvious stuff isn't going to work, right? 
So Satan's got to be more subtle in his ploys. For example, uh, I think we tend to think the really dangerous stuff on television, the stuff we need to avoid, is the stuff that promotes uh, you know, foul language or sexually explicit material or violence or something like that. And, and no doubt we should avoid probably viewing that kind of material. But I'll tell you, I honestly believe that one of the more dangerous channels on television for the Christian is HGTV. I think I may have said this before, and I realize I may be stepping on some toes here, but let's be real. What happens in your heart when you spend hours watching people remake these beautiful homes? Doesn't it start to make you covet just a little bit? Doesn't it make you start to think, you know what, I really need to make this house comfortable, and what I really need is this. And don't you end up spending your time preoccupied on how to improve your own home? You know, what happens in your heart when you see this young couple and the wife says, I'm a part-time dog walker and my husband sells antique stamps on eBay. Our budget is $400,000. Right? You're telling me you don't start to get a little envious of those people, maybe even a little bitter of your own circumstances in life when you view that? Well, that's what James warns about back at the end of chapter 3. He says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. In fact, that's precisely what's happening to the churches that James is writing to. Their desire for comfort is making them unwilling to live out the obligations of the gospel. And yet we sit down and watch things like HGTV without any consideration for the effect these types of programs have on our hearts. My wife and I started using Hulu lately. It comes with, a, comes with our cellular plan. Uh, one of the big shows that, that Hulu is pushing right now is called The Hand, Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you've heard about this show or not. Uh, I've heard it mentioned in passing by a few different people online and different news articles even. And from references I'd heard, I figured it probably had something to do with a Christian dystopia, so I thought I'd do a little digging and find out what the show is about. The summary reads like this says, based on the best-selling novel by Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale is the story of life in the dystopia of Gilead, a totalitarian society in what was formerly the United States. Uh, facing environmental disasters and a plunging birth rate, Gilead is ruled by a twisted fundamentalism in its militarized, quote, return to traditional values. As one of the few remaining fertile women, Offred Elizabeth Moss, is a handmaid in the commander's household, one of the cast of women forced into sexual servitude in a last desperate attempt to repopulate the world. In this terrifying society, Offred must navigate between commanders, their cruel wives, domestic Marthas, and her fellow handmaids, where anyone could be a spy for Gilead, all with one goal, to survive and find the daughter that was taken from her. So you can see what's going on here, right? They're taking this extremely distorted caricature of the Judeo-Christian, of Judeo-Christian concepts, and they're using it to create a story in which the Christians are the bad guys. They're the anti-science, anti-woman section of society that wants to hinder progress and, and enslave us to their twisted sort of values, whereas the real heroes are the, in this world are the ones who push against this system by fighting for sexual liberation. Do you see that? It creates a distorted picture of Christianity, one that, that simply doesn't exist, at least not outside of those that we ourselves would say are outside of the faith. And it presents that view 
of, quote, righteousness to the world, so as to present vice as virtue and virtue as vice. It's not hard to present evil as good. You only have to pit it against a greater evil. And that's what this show does with their character of Christianity. Incidentally, by the way, the, the, the book was written in 1985, but the show didn't go into production until late 2016. So I'll let you go ahead and let you put together, two and two together on that one as to what kind of commentary this show is trying to make about where things are headed in our society. I hate to say this, but how many Christians do you think watch this show? And what do you think happens to their faith when they see a, a gay man, a Catholic, and an abortion worker hung by this so-called Christian society? How do you think it alters their perception of their faith, if ever, if ever so subtly? And it's not just the graphic stuff that does this. Again, I think I may have shared this before, but I remember shortly after Emily and I were married, she and I went to watch the, the children's movie, Happy Feet. And as we left the theater, I told her, I said... Our kids are never going to watch that. And then you may say to yourself, really, happy feet? You know, what's, what's so bad about a bunch of dancing penguins? Right? But if you pay attention to the plot, it depicts, it depicts belief in God as a kind of superstition that's hindering the world's progress on environmental issues. The protagonist, a penguin called Mumble, who's, who's cast out of his society for being different, in order to save his colony, he has to fight against his society's old crotchety elders who don't want to break tradition for fear of offending, quote, the great Gwyn. Again, it takes our tendency as a people to show mercy for the weak and the outcast, which is a Christian concept, by the way. And ironically enough, it uses that instinct to pit us against God by putting God on the side of the bully, on the side of the establishment. Again, that's simply not true. Christianity may be exclusive in the sense that it claims to be the one true faith, but at the same time, it is most definitely inclusive in that it invites all people into this faith, including the weak and the outcast. And this is how it's always been since the very beginning. In fact, that's how the church got started in the book of Acts. It most definitely wasn't supported by the establishment. It wasn't the rich and the powerful of the society that made it great. In fact, part of what made it spread so quickly was how it went against the grain of society by treating the marginalized with dignity and respect. God is in no way a bully. But again, that's how the movie presents him. Now, guys, remember, this is a children's movie. And what do you think happens to a child's mind as they watch that? What seeds are being planted in their brain about the concept of religion and most specifically about the Christian faith? So are you going to tell me that there's not an agenda at work in our cultural institutions to blind the minds of the unbelieving to the gospel? Come on, it's clear as day. Now, it's not always as obvious as that, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily the intention of those creating this sort of material. They may not mean to do that. I would imagine that for most of them, they're just trying to create something they think is entertaining. Sad to say, but fact is, the vast portion of our society doesn't really have any kind of formal ideology anymore that they're fighting for. They just want to make money. Mammon is their God, and they're creating content that, that, will, that will earn them a steady paycheck. Regardless, the content is still being created and the Bible tells us who stands behind it all. And if you're not careful, it will affect you, Christian. 
For example, let me ask you. Let me ask you. How many of you cringe at the word fundamentalist? How would you respond, for instance, if someone called you a Christian fundamentalist? I'd imagine most of you would try to distance, distance yourself from the term, right? But, but why? Have you ever met a fundamentalist? And by that, I don't mean someone you'd call a fundamentalist. I mean someone who would call themselves a fundamentalist. Let me ask you, what do you think makes someone a fundamentalist? Does it mean that they ban things like dancing or playing cards? If so, tell me, where did you get that definition of fundamentalism from? Because I'll tell you, do you know what the people who would have actually called themselves fundamentalists fought for? There was a whole fundamentalist movement in the early 1900s, and you know what it was about? It was about things like the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. That's really what they were fighting for more than anything else. The fundamentalists were the ones that pushed back on the encroachment of liberal theology in the church. You know, people who denied things like the virgin birth or the physical resurrection of Jesus or a literal six-day creation. And in case you think I'm making that up, just listen to what Wikipedia says. Wikipedia, of course, is open source, uh, so it's generally going to depict the, the public's perception of a fact rather than the bare facts themselves. So I think it's probably fair to say that this is more or less a common understanding of fundamentalism. This is what it says. First paragraph, Wikipedia. Christian fundamentalism began in the late 19th and early 20th centuries among British and American Protestants as a reaction to theological liberalism and cultural modernism. Fundamentalists argued that 19th century modernist theologians had misinterpreted or rejected certain doctrines, especially biblical inerrancy, that they viewed as the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Fundamentalists are almost always described as having a literal interpretation of the Bible. A few scholars regard Catholics who reject modern theology in favor of more traditional doctrines as fundamentalists. Scholars debate how much the terms evangelical and fundamentalists are synonymous. In keeping with traditional Christian doctrines concerning biblical interpretation, the role Jesus plays in the Bible, and the role of the church in society, fundamentalists usually believe in a core of Christian beliefs that include the historical accuracy of the Bible and all its events, as well as the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, guys, and I hate to break this to you, but if you adhere to the teachings of this church, it's probably fair to say that by the technical definition of the term, you are a fundamentalist. And if you think that those who deny inerrancy are in grave danger, even to the degree that they might not be Christians, then you are most definitely a fundamentalist. The truth is, we should be grateful for the fundamentalists of the early 20th century because they guarded the gospel for us, kept it clear. We stand on their shoulders. I would even venture to say that many of us in this room today are saved and growing in their faith precisely because of their willingness to go against the grain of the culture and contend for the faith. So let me ask you, where did you get the idea, perhaps, that fundamentalism is a bad thing? And why do you think you might have been given that impression? Can you see where I'm, where I'm getting at here, guys? And I know this probably sounds like I'm picking on television or, or, those, or types of various types of media here. And I'll say, there is good reason for that. 
It's because, I think it's because both the, the proliferation of this kind of influence in our lives and the passivity with which we interact with it makes it so very dangerous. I mean, you stop and think about it, and the whole point of television and other media is to entertain. It's to turn our minds off. And then we hand that privilege over to the Harvey Weinsteins of the world as we invite their products into our home every night. So I do think this is a major issue for the church, one which we tend to overlook for fear of, you know, sounding like a fundamentalist. But all the same, I don't think media is the only issue. It just illustrates the point. And the point is that if we're going to resist Satan and repent of our spiritual adultery, then it's probably going to start with a very careful analysis of our thinking. As James says here, we need to purify our hearts. And because of the forces that are at work in this world to pull us away from the truth, that's going to require that we stop being passive about the information or the impressions that we take into our mind and instead actively put on the kinds of thoughts that we find in Scripture. As Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. Right? Friendship with the world, enmity with God. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed. How? He says, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says that to resist these spiritual forces, we must not only take up the shield of faith, but the sword of the Spirit as well, which is the Word of God. We have to become very careful, very intentional in conforming our thinking to the Word of God if we're going to resist the demonic schemes that mean to keep us ensnared and under the discipline of God. This is why in that conflict assessment I gave you, I told you to ask yourself not just what do I want right now, but also what does the Scripture have to say about it? Is it good or bad? And even if it is good, what am I doing to obtain it? We have to be very intentional to regularly examine ourselves and then put on the priorities and values that we find in Scripture if we're to resist the schemes of the devil. And by the way, just to be clear here, because I think this point can always be misunderstood. People tend to fly from one extreme to another. I don't think the answer here is to simply remove ourselves from worldly influence. There are some Christians who will try to do that, and that's utter foolishness, and the reason why it's foolishness is because you can't do it. As Paul tells the Corinthians, not associating with the world doesn't mean not having contact with it, since that would mean you'd have to leave the world. It's impossible to escape the influence of the world, and those who think otherwise make the grave mistake of thinking they can put themselves into a position where they no longer need to be vigilant, and that's not how this works. No, the idea is not so much to remove yourself from Satan's influence, but to resist it. And that requires constant vigilance, constant mental discipline. It requires very intentionally, very actively putting off the former way of thinking that you adhered to before you became a Christian and putting on the mind of Christ. So then, how do we do that? And what does that look like? I think you can already anticipate part of the answer to that question. In fact, we've already answered it in part. Uh, Romans 13, 14, right? Make no provision for the flesh. 
You stop feeding your flesh with a steady diet of temptation. Remember, there's this part of you that wants to believe the lies. We're not just passive in Satan's temptations. James says that our flesh goes out courting temptation back in James 1.14. So we make the intentional decision to stop flirting with worldly philosophies. We intentionally tear down worldly thinking by submitting ourselves to the influence of the world. So we spend time in the Scripture. We spend time talking about the Scripture, right? Psalm 1, the man who is blessed, who flourishes. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but, quote, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's one half of the way that we resist the devil. The other is by cleansing our hands. Again, that's the second part of this command. The the parallel thought we rinse, not just the inside, but the outside as well. Now, I've already explained part of the reason for this part of the command. That's because God demands both the inside and the outside of a person. It's like we saw back in James 2. It's not just enough to feel worship or to merely say, I love God. No, if it's not expressed in action, James says, then that kind of faith is vain. In fact, it's really not faith at all, at least not a living faith. And so it's going to be precisely that kind of faith, a a hypocritical faith, that God is going to correct. God isn't going to allow His people to carry His name in vain. He's not going to allow them to say they love Him and not keep His commandments. After all, He's jealous, and and not just for His bride, but even for the glory of His own name. And so He's going to rebuke them when they try to do that. This means that if James readers are going to resist the devil, if, if they're going to escape the trials that Satan is orchestrating against them, it's going to require that they actually change their behavior. God isn't going to settle with anything less than that. But still, I think there's another aspect of this command as well. You see, there's a, there's a particular way that faith works, which James already described earlier in verse 8 when he says this. He says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. I think that statement is one of the more misunderstood and actually important Concepts that you can grasp in your sanctification. It's not uncommon for Christians to think that because salvation is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law, right? It's not uncommon to think then that our personal sin therefore no longer disrupts our relationship with God. And this isn't true. It is true, of course, that salvation is not earned. It is true that it's a gift that we receive completely and utterly of grace without us doing anything at all to deserve it. But to take that and to say that this means that sin no longer disrupts our relationship with God lacks theological precision. And honestly, it tends to present a pretty simplistic view of love and grace as well. After all, when we talk that way, we tend to act like like love is somehow completely incompatible with disappointment or anger. And that's not true. My kids make me angry, for instance, and most of the time my anger is sinful, yes, but not always. And either way, that anger never means that I don't still love them or that I'm ending my relationship with them. In fact, if anything, the reason I'm angry is because of our relationship. 
right? I don't, I don't get angry with other kids when they sin. I get angry with my kids. It's just like we saw in Psalm 73 last week. I rebuke them because I do have a relationship with them and not in spite of it. So their sin can disrupt our relationship. It can make our relationship so that it's not harmonious, but it never ends our relationship. And that's what verse 8 is pointing out as well. Just as God disciplined Israel because it is His chosen nation, and just like He eventually withdrew His presence from the temple while still promising to return to them after they repented, so also is it possible for you to have a relationship with God without experiencing the fullness of His fellowship. If you're in ongoing sin, for instance, if you're willfully engaging in unrepentant sin, then yes, you can expect that He will feel distant. You can expect that you won't experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. You can expect that your prayers will go unheard. For example, Isaiah warns Judah in Isaiah 59, 1-2. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you that He does not hear. Likewise, Peter warns husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And then he explains why. He says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Guys, there's a direct connection between your sin in God's fellowship and favor. And again, that's not because He doesn't love you, it's because He does love you. In fact, He's jealous for you. He desires fellowship with you so much that if your eye is elsewhere, then He will withdraw His blessing as a means of calling you back. All this to say, because God is jealous, there's a particular way that faith works. And the way it works is like this. God acts first, okay, He delivers, He redeems, He saves. But then He he expects that affection to be returned. And when it is returned, it's followed by continued blessing. And when it's not, it's followed by discipline. And I know you're probably tired of hearing me say this, but I keep repeating it because it's so easily misunderstood. That has nothing to do with earning God's love. Both the blessing and the correction come as an expression of His love, as an expression of His relationship. It's just that one, right, is a form of positive reinforcement for healthy expressions of faith, and the other is negative. It's corrective for unhealthy expressions of faith. Again, He desires more than just our mere salvation from hell. He desires fellowship with us. He wants us to know and enjoy Him. And so in His love, He works to urge His children to draw near to Him, either with encouragement or also with correction, depending on which is warranted in the situation. It's good parenting. We see this all the time in the Old Testament. I even gave a whole sermon on the idea from Judges 2 just a couple months back. God delivers Israel. He tells Israel, now obey and I'll drive out the Canaanites before you, but if you don't obey, then I won't. Out of fear, they refuse to obey, and so God withdraws His blessing, and the people are overrun. And that's the whole cycle of the period of the judges. The people ignore God's word. He hands them over to captors. They draw near to God by calling out for help. He raises up a judge. The judge delivers them, and then the people ignore God again. And then it all repeats. It's just up and down, up and down. That's what James is encouraging here as well. Draw near to God by obeying. 
Think about how this works in your own life. Again, Satan attempts to foster disobedience through doubt. He deceives, for instance, in order to produce doubt. Well, what causes you to doubt the goodness or the wisdom or the power of God? There are probably a few different answers to that question, but consider what James tells his readers back in verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. So by this, James implies that you shouldn't expect to receive what you need until you first ask God. You have to draw near to Him first by asking, and then He will draw near to you by answering. Now, why would God act that way? Again, we see the answers down in verses 4 to 6. He's jealous for His people. He wants to be in fellowship with them. He wants for us to come and ask Him so that we can see His power when He delivers in worship. And so, if we do not demonstrate the faith to ask, then He will sometimes discipline us by not providing. So then, go back to the things that you fight over once again. Go back to your conflict assessment. How often do you find yourself asking God to give you what you needed in those situations? And how often did you respond to your desires with prayer? That's all assuming, of course, that you're asking with the right motives, but how often did you pray? I'd venture to say that very often you're not praying, or at least you're praying with wrong motives. And then we wonder, where is God? Doesn't He see me? Doesn't He care? Listen, He does care. But guys, He's already told you, this isn't an entirely one-way relationship. Yes, He initiates a relationship, but He expects you to respond, and then He responds to your response, either positively or negatively. In other words, we often struggle in our faith, and the reason is because we don't understand how faith is supposed to work. We expect the reassurance before we exercise faith. When actually the Scripture tells us that the reassurance tends to come after. God promises. He then expects us to act on that promise, and then after we've received that promise, by faith, through action, He delivers. Do you understand the order is not, it is not, let God drive your doubts away, and then obey based on the confidence He's given to you. It's the other way around. Obey first, and then watch God drive your doubts away as a response to that faith. The reason why we struggle with doubt so often is because we have not cleansed our hands. God presses trials in upon us to correct our spiritual adultery, and somehow we're still left going, I don't understand why God won't provide. I guess He must hate me. I guess He must want me to sin. No! No, the problem isn't God, it's us. We're the one exhibiting unfaithfulness. If we only turned from our sin, God would relent and our faith would be reassured. We get it totally backwards. This is why when people come to me, wrestling with, the, with assurance over salvation, I don't just tell them, we'll just believe on the gospel. But don't get me wrong, I start there. That's the first piece of counsel that I provide. After all, the problem for very many people is that they're looking too much to themselves for assurance of salvation, and that's always a bad place to start. Our obedience is very fickle, and so if the basis of our assurance of God's love starts there, then we're always going to wrestle with assurance. So the first step is to say, get your eyes off of yourself and onto Christ, because it's as you're looking at the cross that you'll understand the depth of God's love for you and the basis of His relationship with you. 
But then I'll also do this. After we spend a good amount of time talking about that, I'll then ask the person, well, what sort of sins are you struggling with in your life? And I'll tell you, very often the people who come to me struggling with assurance quite often are struggling with many. That's not always the case, of course, but it's also not uncommon. In fact, that's very often what's provoking their doubts. They're saying, I have so much sin in my life, how can I know that God loves me? And this comes even from people who believe in the gospel. It's it's not that they doubt the concept of grace. I can explain the gospel to them, and they understand all of that. They're just wondering if all of that applies to them. It's not you understand it's not God that they're doubting, it's them. They know that salvation is by faith, but they're wondering, how do I know that I've believed? And that's a very question to ask, by the way. The Bible even encourages that kind of thinking from time to time. And so I say, well, we know that we believe when we obey, and the way we obey is by faith. And so after telling them, look to Christ, I'll say, now as you look to Christ, I want you to try working to put away this sin and and to do this not by the power of your flesh. Don't do this by the power of your flesh, but by faith, by believing on the promises of God. Trust that the gospel says that God does love you, and so he won't deny you any good thing, and then let the confidence of that love serve as the basis for your resistance to your fleshly desires. And then when they stumble, and they will stumble very often, I'll remind them, don't let that discourage you. Sanctification is progressive. Don't let the doubt draw you in despair and further disobedience. Look to the cross once again. Remember that He loves you in spite of your faith and let the knowledge of that encourage you to once again draw near to Him. I just want to encourage them over and over and over again. Allow the gospel to encourage you to continue to draw near to God no matter what happens. And do you know what happens once they do that more often than not? As they see their disobedience fade by faith, the doubt starts to dissipate as well. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, first off, no longer do they wonder, do I have faith? Because they can see it, right? That's one reason. But the other reason is because they also understand the source of that faith, which is God. They see God's love for them on display and the fact that they're growing in their faith. So no longer do they have to simply take the promise of God's love only by faith. Because they can see it. The evidence of God's love is clear in their life. It's before their very eyes. In fact, it's evident not just because they have the power to obey, it's evident also in the fact that they see this blessing, this joy that flows out of submitting to God's commands. To be sure, it's not blessing in the same way that the world counts blessing or something like that. It's not health and wealth that we're talking about here, but rather the peace that surpasses all understanding, which Paul talks about in Philippians 4. As their desires are transformed through the the renewal of the mind and and conformed to the image of Christ, all of a sudden they find themselves with Paul saying, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And no longer are they having to work so much to submit their flesh simply on the promise of God's love. Because they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And they want to obey. It's so weird. It's so weird. Christians expect to find this assurance of their fellowship with God. All the while, they're running full speed away from Him headlong into their sins. Like, why would you ever expect to feel near to God 
as you're running away from Him. No, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And this is why James follows up this command to resist the devil and draw near to God by saying, not just purify your hearts, you double-minded, but also cleanse your hands, you sinners. The doubt that drives away idolatry isn't only fueled by the thoughts that drive us into disobedience. It's also produced by the disobedience itself because God disciplines the one He loves. Again, the trials are arising out of this idolatry that's manifesting these Christians' conflicts and And this rebuke is actually causing them to think, I guess God doesn't love us. I guess He wants us to sin. No, that's not how this works. The problem isn't His unfaithfulness. It's theirs. It's their disobedience that's causing God to withhold His blessing. Their conflicts demonstrate that they're clearly not asking God, or at the very least, they're asking with the wrong motives. And that's what's causing God to hold back. So if they want to see their faith increase, if they want to see God prove Himself true once again, this is what they need to do. They need to draw near to God. They need to cleanse their hands in addition to purifying their hearts. Once they do that, God will prove Himself true. He'll draw near to them, and as He's always been inclined to do. And then all their doubts will be dispelled. Brothers and sisters, do you find yourself sometimes falling into disobedience because you struggle with doubts? Listen, I'll admit, I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, I do. And I'll also be the first to tell you that when I do struggle with doubts, it's because of one of two reasons. Either I've allowed myself to fall under the sway of some worldly line of thinking. Like I I might start to think that God isn't faithful, maybe because I don't have as much money as I want. Or maybe because the church isn't growing as fast as I think it ought to or something like that. Which much of the time, it's not all the time, but much of the time, that's just coming, that's just jealousy and selfish ambition. It's thinking that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And so my doubts are all arising because I'm applying a wrong definition of God's faithfulness, which has been supplied through my undiscerning contact with the world. And then when God doesn't act like that, I think He's not faithful. You know, I'll, I'll read a biography about Alexander Hamilton or something, and then I'm thinking, how come I'm not doing more with my life, all the while working with worldly definitions for success? I'll do something like that. That's one reason why I'll, I'll wrestle with doubt. Or, and here's the other reason, quite simply, I'll disobey. Like, I'll, I'll try to obey God, for instance, but, but I'll do it under the power of my own flesh or something like that. I see this often in ministry, for instance. I'll, I'll try to see others grow in Christ, and I'll labor for it, but for whatever reason, I simply stop asking God to make the work fruitful. And then when I turn around and see that my work was fruitless, I'll wonder, where were you, God? Listen, James tells me the question I should be asking isn't where was God, but where was I? You do not have because you do not ask, he says. Because God is jealous for you, he says. See, why would God ever bless my efforts to serve Him if they're done apart from Him? The whole point of my redemption is that I might be in fellowship with God, that I might glorify Him as I delight in Him. And so to try to serve Him without praying to Him, without asking Him to bring the fruit, it goes completely against His purposes in redemption. So why would He ever bless that? How would I be called back into fellowship if God simply supplied the desire without my asking? So God was where he's always been. 
right? He was on his throne, ready to hear my prayers. The real question is, where was I? Why wasn't I on my knees in prayer? You see, God isn't to blame for my doubt. I am. That's been one of the points that James has been continuing to drive home since chapter 1, right? God isn't the reason for our sin, nor is He responsible for the consequences that arise because of our sin. We are. Our own sin bubbles up from inside of us and causes us to do things that remove us from the blessing of God. So if we're going to blame anyone, assign it to where it really belongs. And that's with ourselves. I'd encourage you, if you struggle with doubt, consider that this might be the reason why. The issue may not be that God has pulled away from you. It may be that you've pulled away from Him. He's not the unfaithful one. You are. Consider, ladies and gentlemen, that maybe where you need to begin, if you want to see the blessing of God once again, if you want to understand His fellowship once again, the way you begin is by cleansing your hands. So is that all there is to it? I mean, we can see that we're contending against the spiritual forces of this world. We can see that they're working to blind the minds of the unbelieving by distorting and even silencing our testimony. We can see also that God will discipline us, that He will contend for us, so long as we fall under the sway of these spiritual forces. We know, therefore, that we must resist these forces. And we now know as well that this means that we must rinse ourselves of their influence, both in our hearts and with our hands. But is that all there is to it? And for that matter, what will happen once we do all of this? What will be the result of our resistance? We'll discuss all of that as we get into the final part of this passage next week. There is still one more step to go. And as James discusses this step, he tells us of the wonderful fruit that comes once we take these steps. And I'll just point out right now, as we talk about how Satan attempts to influence and distort The thinking of the church, I think we can see a terrific example of how he's already managed to do this quite effectively in this final step. What James tells us to do next is counterintuitive. It goes so completely against what we've been told to think about the kinds of experience that ought to accompany genuine expressions of faith. It's definitely not the popular perception of Christianity today. And for this reason, many Christians continue to remain out of fellowship with God and are unfruitful. What is that final step? I'd encourage you to come back and find out in part five of this passage next week. Let's pray.